This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. This is part two of our four-part technology and finance discussion with Wharton International Management Professor Mauro Guillen and PwC partner Elizabeth Dieppe. Here, we explore consumer and industry challenges. So let's move on to some of the challenges of technology and finance. New ways of doing things, particularly involving something as intimate as finances, are often met with a degree of skepticism and paranoia. Um, Take, for instance, the mobile wallet. Apps like Google Wallet allow consumers to transfer money, redeem coupons, or pay for purchases with just a tap of their smartphones. Even so, this and other similar technologies are far from popular. Studies suggest that the way we pay for goods and services probably won't change anytime soon. Ease of use does not always lead the charge, and creating the necessary supporting infrastructure is also an issue. So, Mauro, can you address in general this reluctance to adopt new technologies after doing something a certain way for so long? And what are the implications of this for consumers? Well, there's many, uh, you know, issues involved in the adoption of uh, any new technology. And here we're not talking about adopting just one thing. Uh, We're talking about adopting a number of uh, different kinds of technologies. And uh, we're asking essentially the consumer to change his or her habits um, in a major way. And uh, this is not about uh, something that people don't care about. Uh, This is about money. And so there's, uh, you know, uh, many different kinds of considerations here that need to be uh, um, uh, kept in mind. So I would say starting with um, the user, with the consumer, um, habit is, of course, a very powerful force. And uh, it goes without saying that older people have more trouble not because they're old, but rather because they've been doing things in a particular way for a longer period of time. Uh, so there's a lot of um, research that indicates that uh, it is easier, as Liz mentioned, uh, to uh, introduce these new ways of um, um, marketing products and interacting with uh, companies uh, for younger people, for the millennials. Uh, not only they're more familiar with the technology, but they don't have any acquired habits right, that they need to, uh, to uh, overcome. Um, I would say security and privacy are really important. Uh, And they're two different issues. So security is uh, what happens if I lose my smartphone, Uh, if I have all of my information there, all of my credit cards, all of my bank cards, all of my, you know, membership cards, um, what's going to happen, right? And perhaps technology actually in this respect uh, can um, reassure users that, there are ways of uh, essentially canceling automatically all of your information on a smartphone, right, or deleting it even if it has been uh, stolen. Privacy is a different concern. That is to say that once we go digital, uh, then your information can be easily, you know, communicated from one part of the world to a a totally different part of the world. Uh, It can be bought and sold. And there's a lot of people who don't like it. But I would say that um, with the uh, arrival of uh, credit cards uh, 50 years ago, we already enter that world in which, uh, you know, some companies, banks would know everything about you, everything that you buy, uh, where you spend your vacations, and, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, but you also alluded to another level of complexity here, which is really important to keep in mind, which is the infrastructure. So it takes two to tango. And this is a two-sided kind of dynamic. You need not just the user to be persuaded, uh, the consumer, the individual consumer, to be persuaded that the new technologies are important Uh, steps in the right direction in terms of making things easier, more efficient, and so on and so forth. But you also need 
um, all types of vendors and merchants, uh, you know, everything from, you know, shops to restaurants to airlines uh, to hotels. Uh, you need all of them to accept these new ways of, uh, you know, forms of payment, these new ways of, uh, you know, maybe using discount coupons and so on and so forth. Um, so I think uh, the obstacles lie uh, at, at those two levels, the level of the individual and the level of the infrastructure, uh, because this is essentially a two-sided uh, network uh, dynamic. And uh, I don't think uh, we have figured out uh, exactly all of the pieces that need to be in place so that some of these uh, you know, innovations um, essentially reach you know, 70, 80, 90, 100 percent of the population. So you alluded to a couple of, of issues, some of the challenges like privacy, security. Um, maybe we can drill a little deeper into those right now with the help of questions from some of our educators. Um, one of the biggest challenges with online and mobile banking, digital credit card transactions and so on, is posed by security concerns. David Janeski, a teacher at Fossil Ridge High School in Texas, asks, with the continuing news reports of companies like Home Depot and Target being hacked, how can we rest assured that data is truly encrypted? How can I tell if the transaction I'm doing online is secure? And what precautions should consumers take? Liz, do you want to take the lead on that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and that, that's a great question because we often hear that, you know, you have all these financial institutions uh, spending billions of dollars on cybersecurity, and yet we keep hearing about these security breaches. And, and so, I mean, I ask myself the same, same, same question of what isn't working? Or what can I really do as an individual consumer to protect against that? And I'll say that there really isn't, you know, what I've come to realize is that there really isn't anything that isn't working per se, except that as technology evolves, cyber attacks are becoming more sophisticated each and every day. And I think that what that means as a consumer is that we have to be smart about what personal information we actually share and where we share it. Um, you know, at, at PLUC, we've actually developed a module on financial responsibility and decision-making as part of our financial literacy curriculum. And it relates to consumer fraud, because we see that as being such a big, such a big issue, and one that as we go out into the uh, middle schools and the high schools, we see sort of students uh, sharing a lot of information without thinking of where that may go and how that could be used. And uh, the module is publicly available and teaches students about fraud and, and precautions that they can take to avoid identity theft as well as resources if consumers encounter any of these problems. And I'll share with you um, a acronym that the module uses being SCAM, S-C-A-M. Um, and this acronym is used to try to reduce and give you some tips on how to reduce the risk of becoming a victim of uh, consumer fraud. And so SCAM stands for the following four things, CS being, you know, be stingy about giving out your personal information to others unless you have, a, you have a real reason to trust them and you know where that's going. Um, the C is for check. You know, check your financial information regularly and look for, for what should be there, but also what shouldn't be. You know, really looking at those credit reports and what kind of information is being reported in them. And sort of that's the A is for ask. You know, and that's asking periodically for a copy of, of those credit reports. I think that I'm as guilty as everyone where we go too long without really checking our credit reports. And, and nowadays, this is, that is information that you can obtain on the web for free. And uh, last but not least, M, and maintaining careful records of your banking and financial accounts. And that, that goes from a different of, uh, 
at a different levels where we sometimes, and I'm very bad at this, we dispose of bank accounts and other information without shredding them or making sure that we know where that's going. And there's a lot of very personal information in there that can be used to, uh, to harm us. So I think that these simple checks can significantly reduce your risk and just serve as good precautions to protect the data that we and, and much of our family uh, share online. Thank you. Yeah, I'm curious about the other side of this, Mauro. We hear so much about financial institutions spending billions on cybersecurity, but we repeatedly hear about these breaches. What isn't working, and are companies considering new models for consumer protection? Well, I, I like to liken it to um, an arms race. Um, so the hackers um, are becoming more sophisticated, and therefore companies need to become more sophisticated. But as companies become more sophisticated, the hackers and the all of the bad people, so to speak, uh, uh, they, they uh, you know, find a way uh, to uh, intrude into uh, the information system. So I think this is just the nature of the beast. I mean, once we have um, information in the form of, uh, uh, you know, digitized code as opposed to stored in a, on an on a electronic device, as opposed to, you know, paper and archives and all of that, then, you know, we become vulnerable and somebody you know, miles away, thousands of miles away can actually hack into, can get into, uh, into, the, uh, into the system and, uh, and get the data. So I don't think there's an easy answer to this other than it looks like an arms race and there's uh, just no substitute for innovation, for staying ahead of the curve, uh, for making sure that your systems are, uh, are safe. And, uh, you know, the other issue here is, uh, as you mentioned, are the other ways of uh, protecting the consumer. Well, as you know, uh, credit card companies in particular have been uh, very good at trying to um, use big data to um, you know, detect unusual patterns in terms of the usage of cards. So they know your history. They know what kinds of things you do with your credit card. If they detect any unusual activity or they, they can use big data to see if your demographic uh, you know, is unlikely to spend on certain things as well. Right? It's not just your own individual history, but it's like people like yourself, and they have access to all of that data. So they're developing tools to prevent fraud from happening as opposed to having to, you know, deal with the consequences of that fraud after it has taken place. And as you know, um, many issuers of credit cards now offer you a guarantee that you will not pay for unauthorized use of your, of your account. Unfortunately, I don't think this is going to be enough. If we are moving uh, into the world of electronic wallets, if, you're, if we're moving into the world of digital currencies and all of that, we're going to have to come up with, uh, you know, foolproof, uh, very, uh, you know, sophisticated uh, security systems that essentially provide the overall um, system with uh, uh, trust, the necessary trust. Because uh, without that, people are not going to buy into these technological innovations. They're going to feel that they're perhaps at the mercy of uh, you know these periodic uh, breaches, right, that get reported in the press. Um, so this is a serious issue and is one that could slow down the pace of innovation and of adoption of new technology. Mm. On that same note, and I know you mentioned this before, you started to talk a little bit about cryptocurrency. Um, the question of risk is often associated with Bitcoin. Bitcoin is money in digital form that you can use to buy things anywhere in the world and that you can invest in. We heard recently about the opening of the first regulated Bitcoin exchange. Can you talk a moment about digital currency? How much traction does Bitcoin have? And is the model sustainable? Okay. So those are, of course, very important questions. 
And if I had a crystal ball, I would be able to give you a definitive answer as to whether the model is sustainable. I, I guess it's not in its current form, uh, but let me explain why. So this is a broader than Bitcoin. Bitcoin is just one example of a digital currency, and it's not a particularly successful one because, as we know, the value of a, of a Bitcoin has been fluctuating quite a bit, and that's a sign that something is wrong with the underlying uh, system that supports it. Uh, so the whole point about digital money is the following. Uh, for uh, certain periods in history, we had currency that was either gold or silver or was linked in its value, pegged in its value to gold and silver. So this has been uh, the case uh, during certain historical periods in the past. At the present time, no country in the world uses gold or silver uh, as currency. And there's no country in the world that has its currency pegged to the value of gold or silver, right? So in other words, the money that we have in the world right now um, is uh, as good as the government who um, issues that currency, right? So you may have a lot of trust in the Swiss government or in the U.S. government or in the German government when it comes to their currency, but perhaps you don't have as much trust in the Brazilian government or the uh, um, Indonesian government and so on and so forth. So the value or the, the trust that we have in the money is only as uh, big as the trust that we have in the government that issues that money because there's no other thing like gold or silver uh, behind it. So that's exactly the issue with digital money. That is to say, there has to be enough confidence in whoever is behind that digital money. Right? We know it's not going to be a government, right? It's going to be maybe a computer, or it's going to be a community, or it's going to be something that uh, uh, is definitely not going to be a government, but we need to have confidence in it. Uh, whatever algorithm underlies that uh, digital currency has to generate enough trust in that you know, the supply of that money is going to be kept uh, under certain limits, uh, that the value of the currency is not going to be eroded. And I think we're making progress um, in that uh, respect because so we see more and more experiments. But I think it's uh, probably, um, it's going to take probably five to ten years for uh, the world to see uh, the first uh, truly successful, trustworthy digital currency that can be used for payments. That's the first step. And of course, we could you know, also discuss uh, under what conditions uh, one might want to use a digital currency as a store of value, that is to say, to keep your wealth in it. And that's a different issue uh, because obviously the first step uh, should be, can we create a digital currency that can be used for payments? Uh, so we are, I think, taking the initial steps, but I don't think it's going to take more than five years for us to start seeing uh, digital currencies play an important role in the world. And again, I say this because it would be similar to what governments are doing right now in the sense that all it takes is to generate enough confidence. It's easy for me to say. It's very hard in practice to generate that kind of confidence. And to date, only governments have managed to do that, right? Especially governments that are perceived as being serious and committed to stability and so on and so forth. Five years is not a long time. It sounds like it would be a smart idea for teachers to start introducing this concept in the classroom. Would you agree in high school? Absolutely. What I think is very important <clears throat> is for high school students to understand that money, that there's nothing behind, you know, the piece of paper where it says, you know, $1, right? Other than the confidence that you may have on the entity that has issued that currency, which is the U.S. government, right? Uh, so in other words, there's no gold, there's no silver, there's nothing backing up that piece of paper 
other than the trust that we have in its issuer, in this case, the U.S. government. And so, you know, you can easily then make the argument, well, we could issue a digital currency as long as we can generate enough of a foundation of confidence and trust in it somehow. And once again, there are several attempts, uh, perhaps uh, three or four dozen of these uh, digital currencies around. Uh, But so far, none of them have managed to generate the kind of generalized trust, right, especially on a global basis, uh, that could make that currency um, a true global digital currency. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.